Uh, please like and subscribe. Uh, write us a review on uh, if you're listening on the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Uh, share the, share the program so others can get to know it and and uh, find it perhaps edifying for themselves as well. Also, if you'd like to uh, get in contact with me, you can comment on uh, YouTube or uh, send me a um, email at frmatkin at priest.com. Also, we want to have our opening prayer. Today is Election Day in uh, the United States and all throughout uh, wherever you are, uh, midterm elections. So there's a prayer in the uh, prayer book for an election. In uh, the 2019, it's uh, number 31. So it's very timely. Let us pray. Almighty God, to whom we must account for all our powers and privileges, guide and direct, we humbly pray, the minds of all those who are called to elect fit persons to serve, grant that in exercise of our choice we may promote thy glory and the welfare of this nation. This we ask for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So do go out and vote if you haven't already, and uh, in doing so, always ask God that he would enlighten our minds and our choices with his wisdom and help us to glorify him in all things that we do. As we mentioned before, we want to talk about purgatory a little bit. We'll probably spread this out over three, maybe four sessions, uh, kind of focusing on different uh, things each one. So I want to kind of generally cover everything that there is to cover. And uh, we'll probably start... Um, I think where it's most naturally is with the idea of prayer. Um, in fact, let's begin with C.S. Lewis. Uh, so he famously uh, believed in purgatory, even though he was uh, perhaps maybe more of an evangelical Anglican. He didn't really identify with any particular party of the Church of England. Uh, he was just kind of a mainstream Anglican. Um, if he's associated with any party, I guess I suppose it would be the evangelicals. Um, but who knows? I mean, he's 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 his own man, and uh, he was a faithful uh, son of the Church of England. So later in his life, uh, he wrote in uh, some letters to Malcolm, a friend, um, and they're both old by this time. And he addresses this idea of prayer for the dead, and uh, he says, I believe in purgatory. It's not very long, uh, so let's just read it briefly and comment on it. So C.S. Lewis writes, Of course I pray for the dead. The action is so spontaneous, so all but inevitable, that only the most compulsive theological case against it would deter me. And I hardly know how the rest of my prayers would survive if those for the dead were forbidden. At our age, the majority of those we love best are dead. What sort of intercourse with God could I have if what I love best were unmentionable to him? I believe in purgatory. Mind you, the reformers had good reasons for throwing out, or, sorry, for throwing doubt on the, quote, Romish doctrine concerning purgatory, as that Romish doctrine had then become. Our view returns magnificently in Newman's dream. There, if I remember it rightly, the saved soul, at the very foot of the throne, begs to be taken away and cleansed. It cannot bear for a moment longer, with its darkness, to affront that light. 
Religion has claimed purgatory. Our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Would it not break the heart of God? Oh, sorry, would it not break the heart if God said to us, It is true, my son, that your breath smells and your rags drip with mud and slime, but we are charitable here, and no one will upbraid you for these things, nor draw away from you. Enter into the joy. Should we not reply, With submission, sir, and if there is no objection, I'd rather be clean first. It may hurt, you know. Even so, sir. I assume that the process of purification will normally involve suffering, partly from tradition, partly because most real good that has been done to me in this life has involved it. But I don't think the suffering is the purpose of the purgation. I can well believe that people neither much worse nor much better than I will suffer less than I or more. The treatment will, given will be the one required, whether it hurts little or much. My favorite image on this matter comes from the dentist's chair. <laughs> Going to the dentist is a whole... <laughs> if that's not purgatory, what is? So he says, my favorite image on this matter comes from the dentist's chair. I hope that when the tooth of life is drawn, and I'm coming around, a voice will say, rinse your mouth out with this. This will be purgatory. The rinsing may take longer than I can now imagine. The taste of this may be more fiery and astringent than my present sensibilities could endure, but it will not be disgusting and unhallowed. So this, again, is from C.S. Lewis's Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, chapter 20, paragraphs 7 through 10. So interesting his take on it, um, and I think he reflects the mainstream thinking in the Church of England in his day. Uh, that yes, we believe in purgatory, that is, we believe in an intermediate state, and that's a, a term that will come up again as we go along. Um, but it's not necessarily the picture painted in the Middle Ages. Uh, that image was rejected as being too much to claim, uh, too much beyond biblical warrant. Uh, it's referred to as not the doctrine of purgatory, but the Romish doctrine of purgatory, or we might say the Romish um, exaggerations or even corruptions of primitive doctrine. So we begin with prayer, and that's where C.S. Lewis begins in dealing with prayer, because he says, basically, that's where the issue comes up. It's natural to pray for the dead. And in fact, in the uh, little catechism in the 79 prayer book, it poses the question, why do we pray for the dead? And the answer is, we still love them. And we pray that in God's grace, they would grow in his love until they see him as he is. See him as he is, experience the beatific vision. So that's why we pray for the dead, because we still love them. And like Lewis says here, you know, when, when you get old and all your friends have died, um, what in the world else are you going to pray for? <laughs> you know, if, if you couldn't pray for the dead, how, how could, that's inconceivable to Lewis, that he could not mention that which is so important to him that he could not share that with God. Um, however he is to pray, certainly his impulse is to pray for the people that he still loves that have passed away. Well, let's look at, if, if we're praying for the dead, what are those prayers? Uh, so we begin with kind of 
uh, where a, a timeline where we're coming from. So we'll start with the pre-Reformation prayers. And uh, so what do we have in the pre-Reformation days? We have the Mass, and you have a feast day, or no, fast day, arising, All Souls Day, the commemoration of all the faithful departed, right after All Saints Day. And so what is the collect for that day? It goes like this. And this is uh, not in an Anglican Missal translation, but in a, uh, an old Roman Catholic Latin and English Missal. So the, the English is not as polished as we would expect from an Anglican Missal. But it goes like this. O God, creator and redeemer of all the faithful, grant to the souls of thy departed servants forgiveness of all their sins. Let our loving entreaties obtain for them the pardon they have always desired. So basically, that is the petition in the collect for All Souls Day, is that the departed would obtain the remission of all their sins. And that is what gives them uh, the ability to rest in peace. Um, the minor propers, um, again and again, uh, offer up uh, petitions from, uh, I think, Ecclesiasticus somewhere, uh, that the the faithful departed would rest in peace, that light perpetual would shine upon them, and so on. That they would uh, enter into joy in God's heavenly kingdom. Well, next let's turn to the canon of the Mass. Oh, and also we should mention at All Souls Day, um, all of the prayers are directed toward the departed. So, for example, in the Agnus Day, which doesn't come until much later, I think the 13, 1400s, uh, it's right before the Reformation. The responses to that um, change for a requiem. So normally it would be, O Lamb of God, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. But at a requiem, you're, you're just praying for the departed rather than yourself. So instead of have mercy upon us, it is grant them rest. Grant the faithful departed rest. So there's a brief prayer, uh, a mention in the Roman canon, or the Eucharistic prayer, of the departed. And of course, the Roman canon is fixed by the time of Gregory the Great. Um, so some things are kind of still shuffling around and moving around until we get to the 600s. But basically, all of these prayers go back to, well, they're kind of lost in the midst of the apostolic church. Some of them may go back to Peter, who knows? But they go back to the early centuries, and um, they, they move around a little bit until they finally find their resting place in the order that we have them by the 600s with Gregory the Great. So this prayer, um, who knows when it was originally composed, but in the early, early centuries. And so interestingly, it, it kind of reflects a more primitive doctrine about the faithful departed uh, than some of the more la later medieval um, speculations. So it goes like this, and this is um, in the part after the words of consecration. Remember, O Lord, thy servants and handmaids who have gone before us, sealed with the seal of faith, and who sleep the sleep of peace. And then he can mention uh, individuals by name. To them, O Lord, and to all who rest in Christ, we beseech thee to grant the abode of refreshing, of light, and of peace. So that is the prayer for the departed in the Roman canon. Um, remembering is um, a, a, a huge feature of Christian prayer. Um, so often what we do when we pray for someone is come into God's presence and remember them. 
That's what Jesus asked us to do in the Eucharist. Do this in, in remembrance of me. Uh, come before God and um, call to mind these things and enter into the action that once took place so its effect can be applied in a new time and place. And then interestingly, right after this prayer, it continues on with a petition uh, for ourselves. And it's almost like we're praying the prayer of the departed for ourselves before we get there. Uh, So it continues on, To us sinners also, thy servants, who hope in the multitude of thy mercies, vouchsafe to grant some part and fellowship with thy holy apostles and martyrs, with John, Stephen, Matthias, Barnabas, Ignatius, Alexander, Marcellinus, Peter, Felicitas, Perpetua, Agatha, Lucia, Agnes, Cecilia, Anastasia, and with all thy saints, within whose fellowship we beseech thee to admit us. So, as much as we're praying for our friends who have gone before us, we're also praying for ourselves, being mindful of our own mortality. Now, in the first prayer book in 1549, uh, primarily composed by Thomas Cranmer, Um, there were some things that were just straight translations, there were some things that were new compositions, and there were other things that were kind of paraphrases, revisions, um, and sometimes putting things together, some consolidations of prayers. So that's what we find with the prayer for for the departed in the first prayer book of 1549. And the prayer for the departed moves from after the consecration to before the consecration, and then later that whole section is kind of detached and moves forward and becomes what we now call the prayers of the people. Um, But before, it was still a part of the canon. And the uh, commemoration of the saints that takes place before the consecration and the commemoration of the saints that takes place after, which we just heard, were kind of put together up front. And so in doing so, they, they included with that that commemoration of the faithful departed. So this section reads like this. And here we do give unto thee most high praise and hearty thanks for the wonderful grace and virtue declared in all thy saints from the beginning of the world, and chiefly in the glorious and most blessed Virgin Mary, mother of thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord and God, and in the holy patriarchs, prophets, apostles, and martyrs, whose examples, O Lord, and steadfastness in faith, and keeping thy holy commandments, grant us to follow. We commend unto thy mercy, O Lord, all other thy servants, which are departed hence from us with the sign of faith, and do now rest in the sleep of peace. Grant unto them, we beseech thee, thy mercy and everlasting peace. So a very similar petition in both cases. Uh, In the Roman canon you have, um, uh, let's see, to them, O Lord, and to all rest in Christ, we beseech thee to grant the abode of refreshing of light and of peace. And in the first prayer book, grant unto them thy mercy and everlasting peace. So it's almost, I think you can detect a little bit of the evolution, uh, maybe evolution is not the right word, the, the uh, flowering, the development of doctrine between one and the other. The more primitive prayer from the Roman canon The petition is, uh, let's see, grant the abode of refreshing, of light, and of peace. There's no mention of mercy, which implies forgiveness. 
There's just the abode of refreshing, of light and peace. Grant that to them. Grant them rest. But by the time we get through the Middle Ages and uh, start to revise the prayers after that, what we find is the petition has grown just slightly. Grant unto them, we beseech thee, thy mercy and everlasting peace. For whatever reason, the word rest is left out. But I would think that the word peace there uh, basically encompasses that whole idea of rest. But then, of course, the word rest is not used in that uh, earlier petition either. The word rest really comes up in uh, um, the minor propers. It, it just assumes they're resting because it begins with the premise, To them, O Lord, and to all who rest in Christ, we beseech thee to grant the abode of the place of rest, of refreshing light and of peace. Well, let's move on to some other um, bits. Uh, a commentary on prayer for the departed. Uh, so we turn to first um, Thomas Brown. Uh, so this comes from a book called Anglicanism, the Thought and Practice of the Church of England, illustrated from religious literature of the 17th century. So this is kind of the high point of Anglicanism, of the theological development of the Caroline divines, um, reflect, reflecting the Elizabethan settlement. Um, and we begin with Thomas Brown. I'm not familiar with Thomas Brown. I don't know who he is. But we have a little excerpt here. He says, I could scarce contain my prayers for a friend at the ringing of a bell, or behold his corpse without an horizon for his soul. An horizon is a prayer. So sort of like C.S. Lewis, um, reflecting that thought that it's only natural to pray for the dead. It's only natural when you hear the ringing of a bell, you know, for whom the bell tolls, brings to mind the departed, brings to mind funerals, brings to mind friends of yours who have died. Immediately, you're going to, your thoughts will turn to praying for the departed because you still love them. And he says, I could hardly ever see a dead body without immediately jumping to wanting to pray for that person and remember them before God. And then Jeremy Taylor, a uh, far more famous um, bishop in the um, Anglican Church of that era. A couple of things he says. This is from um, A Dissuasive from Popery, Part 1, uh, Chapters 1 and 4, uh, The Doctrine of Purgatory. So he explicitly and intentionally addresses uh, this topic. He says, Before we can say any more in this question, we are to premonish that there are two great causes of their, the Roman Catholic, mistaken pretensions in this article from antiquity. The first is that the ancient churches in their offices and the fathers in their writings did teach and practice, respectively, prayer for the dead. So he begins by saying, yes, certainly, the early church practiced prayer for the dead. The Roman Catholics mention that in their arguments a lot of times. We concede that point. We agree with that point. Um, we don't dispute it at all. Now, because the Roman, sorry, because the Church of Rome does so too, and more so, relates her prayers to the doctrine of purgatory and for the souls there detained, her doctors or teachers vainly suppose that what that whenever the Holy Fathers speak of the prayer for the dead, 
that they conclude for purgatory, which vain conjecture is as false as it is unreasonable. For it is true that the fathers did pray for the dead. So his point there is that the Roman Catholic apologists, when they mention prayer for the dead, they said, well, the fathers said you ought to pray for the dead. We have liturgical examples of them praying for the dead. So obviously they believed in the fully developed medieval doctrine and theology about purgatory, which is not necessarily the case. You can't just jump automatically from one to the other. So yes, of course, if they're praying for the dead, they believe in some intermediate state where the dead are and they can receive benefit from our prayers. But it doesn't necessarily mean that what they thought life was like for a dead person back in the first centuries is identical to what they thought life was like for a dead person in the high Middle Ages. There was some thinking done. There's some advancement in theology and doctrine. Uh, There's speculation, questions asked and questions answered. So you can't necessarily equate one with the other. You can equate the practice uh, of prayer for the dead and that it's meaningful and that it's uh, virtuous. That, like it says in 2 Maccabees, um, because you believe in the resurrection, it's a noble thing to pray for the departed. Skipping down a little bit, he says, Upon what accounts the fathers did pray for the saints departed, and indeed generally for all, it is not now seasonably seasonable to discourse, but to say this only, that such general prayers for the dead as those above reckoned, the Church of England never did condemn by any express article, but left in the middle, and by her practice declares her faith of the resurrection of the dead and her interest in the communion of saints, and that the saints departed are a portion of the Catholic Church, parts and members of the body of Christ, but expressly condemns the doctrine of purgatory, talking about the Romish doctrine, and consequently all prayers for the dead relating to it. So Jeremy Taylor uh, basically says, yes, we acknowledge that the early church, they prayed for the dead. We also would say, yes, you can pray for the dead. But we point out that that doesn't necessarily mean that just because you want to pray for the dead and just because you do, it doesn't necessarily mean that you buy into all of the medieval speculation about what life is like for the faithful departed in the intermediate state. And then finally, a little section from Herbert Thorndike. Um, so Thorndike is a theologian. He has been uh, described as an assistant in the committee which revised the Book of Common Prayer. He was disappointed that fewer changes were not made in a Catholic direction. So his interest is more high church, um, more Anglo-Catholic, if you will. Uh, this would be uh, the revision of the 1662, so the current uh, revision, the current prayer book. He says, The practice of the church in interceding for them, that is, the departed, at the celebration of the Eucharist, is so general and so ancient that it cannot be thought to have come in upon imposture, but that the same aspersion will, be, will seem to take hold of the common Christianity. So prayer for the dead is totally natural to the Christian experience. But as to what effect this intercession was made, and that is indeed the due point of difference. So what we mean by prayer for the dead, like Jeremy Taylor says, um, 
that's where we have a disagreement. Uh, skipping down a little bit, he says, For Justin Martyr makes it a part of the Gnostic heresy that the soul without the body is in perfect happiness. They indeed held it because they denied the resurrection. But the church, therefore, believing the resurrection, believes no perfect happiness of the soul before it. That is, there is yet progress to be made. There is yet fulfillment to be made in that intermediate state. You haven't reached the end. You haven't reached the goal. You haven't hit the resurrection yet. Even if you've um, progressed so that you're in perfect charity with God and man and your perfect union with God, the beatific vision, there's still at least one last step to go, which is the reunification <clears throat> of the soul and the body. Your salvation is not yet complete. And so that's a very interesting point that he makes with Justin Martyr in light of modern um, approaches in mainstream Protestantism. And I'm thinking like Methodists and Baptists and so on, where basically it's like you die and you're with Jesus in heaven and that's it. You know, there's, there's sort of nothing in between. There's no reason to pray for the dead you're either saved or you're not, and if you're saved, you're immediately in heaven and you're immediately perfect and you're immediately in full union with God, and there's, there's no growth yet to happen. And uh, that's not the Christian, historic Christian perspective on things. And he says, actually, that what that is is an early anti-Christian Gnostic heresy. And they, they believe that the soul without the body is in perfect happiness because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And for many mainstream Protestants these days, um, the resurrection is just kind of an afterthought. Um, it's all about um, being in heaven when you die. All right, well, let's wrap up very briefly with two uh, prayers. So if you go to the burial rite in the prayer book and you look at the end, there's some extra prayers that are included there and a great resource for devotion and um, worth using, especially during this month of November when we pray for the departed. So when you ask an Episcopalian, an Anglican, you know, what do you people believe? The easiest thing to do is just turn to the prayer book and say, what does it say? That's what we believe. We wrote down our beliefs in our prayers. And so here is a prayer. It comes from the old prayer book. In the old prayer book, it was used for someone at the, at the time of death right when they die, uh, presumably right before they die, as they're dying. And then in this version, it's um, because rarely are you going to be able to use that prayer because um, so often, you know, it, it, anyway. Um, so it was, it was made as a prayer after death. And it goes like this. Into thy hands, O Lord, we commend thy servant, and you can give the name, our dear brother, dear sister, as into the hands of a faithful Creator and most merciful Savior, beseeching Thee that He may be precious in Thy sight. Wash Him, we pray, in the blood of that Immaculate Lamb that was slain to take away the sins of the world, that whatsoever defilements He may have contracted in the midst of this earthly life, being purged and done away, He may be presented pure and without spot before Thee. Through the merits of Jesus Christ, Thine only Son, our Lord. Amen. So what we find here in this prayer is the idea of forgiveness and mercy for the faithful departed, that they would be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now this doesn't lead us to conclude that 
oh, this is for non-believers, that you know, non-believers would get a, one more extra chance after life uh, to basically be, receive a baptism of desire. No, that's not what this means. This is only for use for faithful Christians who've died, not for unbelievers, not for the unbaptized. Um, there, there's a whole different sets of prayers for that situation. And when anyone dies, the basic underlying prayer is always the same. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy upon this person. And so what is God's mercy for his people? It is to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. But now we address the intermediate state, that um, whatsoever defilements he may have contracted in the midst of this earthly life, and the, the old version said, you know, like through the wiles of Satan and the temptations of the flesh and something like that. So these defilements being purged, purgatory, and done away, he may be presented pure and without spot before thee. So there's some, like C.S. Lewis talked about, there's some cleansing time going on here. There's some getting ready time. There's some waiting room time where you're straightening your tie and getting, getting yourself fit to go in. And that continues on in the next prayer, um, kind of the, the other side of that coin. One side of the coin is, is straightening, straightening up and being cleaned up and, and made ready. And the other side is um, progressing in maturity. Remember thy servant, O Lord, according to the favor which thou bearest unto thy people, that increasing in knowledge and love of thee, he may go from strength to strength in the life of perfect service, in thy heavenly kingdom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So there's some maturity that, maturity that happens in purgatory. There's some advancement towards God and his presence and his likeness that takes place in the, in the intermediate state. It's interesting that um, the Eastern Orthodox uh, theology about purgatory or the intermediate state, they would probably prefer that term, um, it gets a little bit bizarre, <laughs> um, and but it stays more in the realm of theological speculation rather than of doctrine. So they developed this idea about toll booths in um, in the sky. You know, if if you're going to get from here to there, you got to cross through some some. Uh, I guess it's a toll road to heaven, <laughs> but you got to get through some toll booths. But I think this is what that's getting at going from strength to strength, that um, in, in the progress of maturity, Christian maturity, and moving toward God, there's some definable stages in that. And um, going through the toll booth is like moving from one stage to another, I guess. I'll, I'll see if I can find, kind of track down some Eastern Orthodox uh, commentary on that idea so we can look at it some more. So next time, uh, we'll look at purgatory again, and we'll look at the articles of religion, uh, what that has to say about it, and some commentary about it. And, uh, and, and we'll continue to talk about purgatory another one or two times after that, uh, just so we can have a look at what all of the Anglican tradition has to say. Well, God bless, and pray.